with me to the morning text that's found in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 16 through 23. Please turn with me in your Bibles or in the Bible in the pew in front of you to Romans 1, 16 through 23. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men, who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. These verses from Romans chapter 1 describe what is universally true of all people who have not come under the power of the gospel. All people on the earth perceive in creation a truth about God, but then they suppress the truth because their inclinations are so strong against it. People who love sin will not come to the light because it will reveal that their deeds are evil. They hate the light, according to Jesus. But the light keeps right on shining in the gospel And for those who are not within the hearing of the gospel, the light goes right on shining in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament declares his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech and night unto night declares knowledge. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So for those who love the truth, instead of hating the truth, creation becomes a dazzling lesson book in theology. It teaches the open mind that there is a deity, an infinitely marvelous being who made the world and everything in it. It teaches that this being has stupendous power and that the power is eternal. The world in its molecular and visual and galactic order and structure bears witness to an architect. And if that architect made everything that is, then he himself was not made, but must have been always and is eternal and eternally powerful infinitely marvelous maker of all things is evident in the lesson book of creation. 
And that's not all you can learn from the lesson book of creation. If, in fact, there is an all powerful, infinitely marvelous maker of all things, then I know something very personal. He made me. I'm his creature. And everything I have, I have from his hand as a free gift. I am made creature, utterly dependent. And everything that I enjoy is a gift from the hand of an all-powerful creator. I stand before the irresistible logic of the lesson book of creation, and I have to admit that everything without exception is a free gift. And that has tremendous implications. It's inconceivable that the creator should ever owe me anything, isn't it? It is inconceivable that a creature should be owed anything by his creator. For when could I have ever given anything to God which was not his so that then he would owe me back? For from him... And through him and to him are all things, the apostle says. I am not my own. I belong to another just as much as this suit belongs to me. I belong to God. Now, what can I give my maker? What can I do for my maker? How can I live for my maker? Because there is a compulsion in a creature to be beholden to his maker If he were hungry, he wouldn't ask me because all the birds of the air and the bugs of the field and the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. We know it from the lesson book of creation. Everything that is, is God's. Absolutely, unequivocally. I can't improve him. I can't enrich him. I can't add to him. I am utterly inescapably and always recipient from him. He is not served by human hands, Paul said, as though he needed anything. Well, how then shall I live for him? What can I do for the honor of my maker? And that, too, is taught in the book of creation Reflected in the mirror of your own conscience. And the answer is very simple. You must be thankful to him. You fulfill your duty if you glorify him by being thankful to him. If there is an eternally powerful, infinitely marvelous God who made everything that is, including me and everything that I have, then there is only one righteous duty for all his conscious creatures, and that is gratitude from the heart all day long, every day, maximum intensity. Gratitude honors God. The psalmist says, He who brings thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies God. Gratitude is the echo of grace reverberating through the hollows of the human heart. It's the admission that we love what we've received but can't pay for it. 
It's the unashamed acceptance of a free gift. And it signifies God's glorious grace and our humility as a needy person. I think it's just amazing how much an open and honest heart can learn from the lesson book of creation. That there is an infinitely glorious God who has eternal power, who made me and everything that I have and enjoy, and to whom I owe life and breath and everything, and therefore for whom I should live by cherishing him and being thankful to him with great intensity every day, morning till night, more than anything else. You don't need one page of the Bible to know your duty to your maker. It's all written from sea to shining sea in the sky and on the earth. You owe him glory and gratitude. And if you did those, that's all that would be required. Although, however, they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or as verse 22 says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. What Paul says in Romans 3.23, all fall short of the glory of God, he explained in Romans 1.23, where he said, people exchange the glory of God for images. Therefore, we can go back to Romans 3.23 and know a very powerful and biblical definition for sin. All have sinned and what? Here's my definition of sin. The meaning of sin is taking the diamond of God's glory, going into the pawn shop of pride and hocking it for the broken marble of self-reliance. Verse 22 says, claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Creation, on the one hand, testifies that we are creatures, that God is all glorious, eternally powerful, that we should cherish him and give him continual and heartfelt thanks day and night. But for some mysterious reason, every single human heart hates that message. And therefore suppresses it with all its might. Or as verse 25 says, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. Here, I'll trade. Give me your lie. I'll give you the truth of creation. And we go our way. Free from that truth 
And the reason I think we do that is because the truth of creation is humiliating. It's too humbling. From sea to shining sea, creation shouts that God has eternal power. God is infinitely glorious. God made me and everything I enjoy. And as for me, what is left for me? Just humbly thank the Lord. Just give him glory through gratitude. That's all that's left for you. Gratitude as a recipient, always a recipient. But proud people don't say thanks. Gratitude is the echo of grace reverberating through the hollows of the heart. But proud people don't need grace. And proud people have all the hollows of their heart crammed full up with wisdom. Claiming to be wise, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Proud people don't say thanks. Tight-lipped, they take the diamond of God's glory, enter into the pawn shop of pride, hock it for the broken marble of self-reliance, and then they go home and they put their little marble with its cat's eye and cracks on the mantle of their mind and find 100 ways every day to bow down to that idol. Although we knew God, we did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in our thinking, claiming to be wise. Proud people don't say thanks. Now we have to pause here and give ourselves a warning. Lest we be saying to ourselves, yeah, right, I I know some people like that. And start pointing our finger. I know some churches like that. We who know God well are indicted by this text. Not just the pagans around us. There's a test I give myself to humble myself before the Lord often. Let me commend it to you. It goes like this. Consider the spontaneity and intensity of your anger when someone slanders you or interrupts your concentration when you're working real hard to get a job done or cuts in front of you at country club when you've got a big basket full and have been waiting for 20 minutes. Consider the spontaneity and energy with which anger rises in your hearts at those times and then compare that with the spontaneity and intensity of the anger or indignation that you feel for God when he is slandered and when his commandments are broken and when people put themselves before him in line. Set them up there and compare the energy. The spontaneity, the intensity, the consistency of those heartfelt actions of the soul. How are you doing? Or flip the coin over on the positive side. 
and consider the spontaneous excitement you feel when you're going to get a raise or you find out that there's a unexpected tax break or one of your superiors gives you a compliment that you hadn't been expecting. Consider and compare the spontaneity and intensity of those feelings of excitement with the spontaneity and intensity of your feelings of excitement when you contemplate the character of Christ and the glory of God in your moments of meditation. How are you doing? That test devastates every one of us. Unless I'm badly mistaken. Our hearts are alive and quick and sensitive and responsive and full of emotion towards things that concern our material welfare and our ego. Oh, yes, we feel we're alive at those moments, aren't we? But oh, how slow and dull and unresponsive and dryly intellectual we are toward the reality of Almighty God. Therefore, let us not point our finger at anybody. I sure can. We, too, make an effort to hock the diamond of God's glory day by day, putting in its place things that get us a lot more excited than God. There's ample evidence in my own emotional life to prove that I have barely begun to cherish this diamond like I So we have need of deep contrition and repentance today, without exception. And the reason I stress this on the Sunday before one of the happiest holidays of the year is that your joy might be full come Thursday or hopefully come four o'clock. Proud people don't say thanks. And I want you to say it from the bottom of your heart. I want you to sing tonight like you've never sung before. We are deeply afflicted with pride. If we don't preface the festival and the feast with contrition, then we simply join the world on Thursday with the most ironic exercise of trying to pump up gratitude for the marvel of self-reliance. And it's a contradiction, and that's why we can't succeed at it. And our thanksgiving is so blah. Now, I know that I could join this morning the popular chorus of witnesses in the church and in society that are telling you day in and day out how beautiful you all are. And I could polish your marble. Oh, I could make it shine so that you thought you really had something there. I could set it up there on the mantle and draw your attention to it and say, let's be happy. Let's be positive. Let's 
Be successful. Look at that shiny marble on the mantle of your mind. And I could put that marble in a very safe place with caricatures of Calvinistic preachers who overemphasize sin and never talk about joy. And I could throw a big spotlight on it, the spotlight of sayings like, if it's going to be, it depends on me. And those of you who have a shallow knowledge of your heart and your Bible would say, ah, sweet words. Listen to how he loves his people. He makes them feel so whole on Sunday morning, not broken like some preachers. But God would rebuke me with the words of Jeremiah 6:14. You have healed the wound of this people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It's as though I were a medical doctor. And you came to me with your friends helping you limp into my office with a big gash right across the bottom of your foot. Laid it wide open to the bone because you stepped on a broken Coke bottle in a mud puddle. And I would take cotton and hold your foot gently and, and very tenderly swab away the dirt around that gash. And then I would close it up so neatly and bring the skin together and very delicately sew it together with sutures in such a way that you scarcely felt the pain. And your friends would look on me and say, my, how compassionate he is. Look at his hands. They're so tender. And the skill with which he put the skin together and the sutures, how excellent they are formed. And they would go out happy. And my very unsentimental medical superior would come to me and say, Piper, you've had a good bedside manner. You tie a good suture, but you sewed that thing up with the bottom full of mud. You have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is pride, pride. Get the mud out. It'll hurt today, but they'll leap like lambs on Thursday. Do your work as a minister of the whole counsel of God. My desire for you this morning is your gratitude. And proud people don't say thanks. I want you to have the deepest, most authentic, most joyful thanksgiving of your life on Thursday. Nothing less. And the reason it can be in spite of your and my miserable failure to thank God as we ought day in and day out is because of this gracious word from our Father in heaven. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. I dwell in a high and holy place and with him who is of a broken and contrite spirit to revive the heart of the contrite and to revive the spirit of the humble. There's our hope. Nowhere else. For the true child of God, the repeated discovery of sin 
in his life leads to grief, which produces repentance, which leads to salvation, which brings no regret, according to the apostle in 2 Corinthians 7. I have no ability to understand people who say to me and say to the church, you shouldn't urge contrition and brokenness and poverty of spirit upon people who are forgiven and who have the renewing, indwelling Christ making them new. I can't understand that. It's precisely because Christ loves me so much that I feel so rotten because of my half-heartedness. Am I to take my half-heartedness lightly because he is kind? Have you never been driven to tears precisely because you are forgiven? Is that so hard to understand? I pray that there will be great heartfelt thanksgiving to God in all your homes this week. I hope that some of you sing in the garage for the first time. Or the shower. Some place where nobody can hear that awful voice. Just God in his delight taking in a song of thanksgiving that rises up out of a broken, contrite, forgiven spirit. I hope some of you write Poems of thanksgiving to share with your families this week. I hope some of you write in your journal prayers of praise. I hope some of you make long lists on white paper of the hundreds of blessings that God has brought you in spite of your sin and which we he will continue to bring. And I hope that some of you spend very special times with God. And I hope that some of you. Say to wife or husband or very special friend, eyeball to eyeball, I thank God for you. We need to say a lot of that this week, okay? Maybe before you leave here, go to somebody whom you haven't said that to in a long time and eyeball it with them. I thank God for you. But proud people don't say thanks. And therefore, I have tried to lay before you three very humbling truths this morning. One, the lesson book of creation teaches that there is an eternally powerful, all-glorious being who made me, made you. You are not your own. You belong to him as his property. And everything you enjoy is a free gift, not something that you have earned. And our duty, therefore, is simply to glorify him by giving thanks from hearts of deep gratitude. And the second truth is that none of you ever do that like you should. An infinite God with infinite mercy and infinite beneficence is worthy of the intensest, most consistent, heartfelt, gratitude and love and devotion every day, all day long, that any human can possibly give. Is there anybody in here who does that? We sin every day. We are sinners. Poverty of spirit is not something to be left behind. We have no choice if we're honest. 
We must be broken and contrite in spirit. And the third humbling truth is this. Almighty God, our creator, in the great love with which he loved us, sent Jesus Christ into the world to endure your judgment, the judgment of those who are broken and contrite in spirit and look away from themselves to him for hope. Proud people don't say thanks, but people who believe those three truths say thanks. And they don't just say thanks, they feel thanks from the bottom of their heart. The truth that we are utterly dependent creatures, the truth that we are depraved in our condition, and the truth that we are forgiven, redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if those three truths will penetrate your heart this morning, if you'll open yourselves to them and welcome them, then they will empty you of pride. And you know what will happen tonight? You will be filled from the bottom to the brim and overflow both at the festival tonight and the feast on Thursday with tremendous thanksgiving. Let's pray. Have mercy upon me, Father, to open my eyes. And mercy upon this people to open the eyes of their hearts to see with clarity these life-changing truths. Would you cut away the calluses of our hearts so that the red, oozing, livid flesh is exposed and can actually feel our creatureliness, our coldness, and our forgiveness because of your great, amazing grace. Let the festival in this very night and the feast on Thursday be the humblest and the happiest of times because we revel in your amazing grace. And now unto you, O God, our Creator and our Redeemer, be glory And thanks from the humble people of your love. And all those people said, Amen.